Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Just as Bitcoin uh, eschews the idea of fiat money, uh, all, um, carnivore diet eschews the idea of fiat food. Good morning, good evening, uh, good night. Uh, wherever the sun is in your world, you are listening to Text Message with me, Nate Langson. Uh, Ian out this week, slightly too busy, I think, uh, cataloguing ostriches in his new bomb-proof underground bird farm in Surbiton. But in his stead, it's CNET's Andy Hoyle. Hello there. Uh, We are going to thank our patrons, uh, and if you are one of our patrons, this is your extended ad-free version of this week's show. If you're not yet a patron, but would like to get our ad-free versions, our extended cuts, live streaming, and access to our 24-7 Discord members club, head to patreon.com forward slash UK tech and find out how you can support us with zero, that's zero, commitment, uh, and instant access to our entire back catalogue of extended shows. Now, we like, as Tom Merritt, our good friend on Daily Tech News Show, to end each month with at least one more patron than we had the previous month. Um, we didn't have any new patrons this week, uh, which is a shame, but instead we're going to thank Neil Jones, Maria Van Der Vee, uh, Peter Hope, Neil Fisher, Matt Dawson-Jones, Martin Gear, uh, just some of the many other patrons, um, and we thank you for your continued support. Later on, we have got, I would say, a tremendous surprise for longtime fans of the show dating back to uh, the Wired UK podcast days. Let's start, though, with the news, because this week, the UK's 3G network, well, the, the, the UK's first 3G network, 3, is going to stop selling 3G-only devices, um, a move which uh, the register says demonstrates how wizzy, modern, and far-sighted the network is. Um, 3 told the register, quote, removing 3G devices is a first for the UK and another industry-leading approach from 3 aimed at further enhancing the customer experience. Now, the register pointed out that the move only really affects feature phones, for example, the new 3G version of Nokia's 3310, and 4G devices that fall back to 3G, which is to say most smartphones now, uh, will continue to be sold. Andy, there's irony here, right? There is a bit of an irony, given that it is the the three, and their name is derived from the fact that they were the first 3G network and they're no longer offering any 3G-only phones. So really, they should upgrade their name to four. Well, or, or even they could go one step further and go five, ready for 5G, and be the first UK network to bring 5G here. I have a theory that they will rebrand, but they won't go with a number. They'll go with something like Hutchinson which is the parent company of... of yeah, 3. but that's boring. That's so dull. Because they're all... Yeah, as you say, the parent company is Hutchinson 3G, and that's the Hong Kong-based firm that is that is the, the, the parent company. But at least 3 has a little bit of a UK sort of nostalgia feel to it. Because when they first launched, they had those really bizarre adverts that... Do you remember they were... I think they were based in Japan and... There was some sort of like weird floating colourful orb in and people kept sort of looking at the orb and being 
were transfixed by the orb and no one really knew what the hell was going on but it was something to do with telecoms i have to be honest i don't remember that at all and i was apparently the very first customer in derbyshire to own a 3g phone the uh, gentleman in the shop when i bought uh, one of the very first devices ever released that had 3g in the uk um, he told me you're the first person to sign up in derbyshire um i've still milking that triumph that win for what it's worth um but the phone it It wasn't a win though was it because you were the only one so you had no ability to really use it because remember you were also the first person to get a camera phone you got one of the first nec uh flip camera phones that you had and you had nobody to send or receive photos with because no one else had a phone that could receive them that's absolutely not true um and also the first 3g phone and the first camera phone were in fact the same device it was the nec e606 it was indeed a flip phone um it's i mean it was a terrible phone in almost every way i mean it came with two batteries in the box because the battery was so was so poor but you're right uh in that it was very limited who who you could contact with this but i did have a friend in fact he's a mutual friend of yours and i's guy called pete williamson yeah and pete got one of these phones as well and my very first video call which cost 50 pence per minute was when pete was in macclesfield and i was in buxton and we had uh, a video call and it cost 50p what's even stranger though about when this network when it first launched is that you didn't actually have um data with it as far as i can really remember honestly i don't remember i remember you being very very excited about the phone um very excited about the fact that you can finally you can send and receive pictures but you had just the one friend so it was basically like you had a visual walkie-talkie that's it that's a link only between the two of you but to nobody else yeah and at quite a cost i think i was paying about 40 pounds a month and that came with 700 texts 40 pounds sorry seven (laughs) 700 minutes no data and no uh texts um yeah i know i know you were being absolutely shafted for it I was. I ended up selling it to a friend of mine, uh, Ella, and she she kept it for for a couple of years. I haven't spoken and to. She her hated from... you forever afterwards because of the curse that you had given her. But it cho- it shows you as well just how far mobile networks have come. You know, this was two thousand and three when this phone came out. We're in two thousand and eighteen now. That's fifteen years, and it's gone from being the cutting edge name and network after it to it almost being ironic that it's named after the thing that it's now first to kill off. Um, and I don't think the brand can necessarily carry on without some, you know, change, particularly when we're all going to start talking about 5G um, if they're killing off 3G only phones. But I'm very interested. I to- don't think that's true because I don't think anyone who I don't think any of the people who use three, at least 98 percent of the people who use three have any idea that the name three comes from it being a 3g network i don't think anyone knows but and what if does they it do mean? i don't think anyone cares what does it mean though i mean what what does that as a brand what does 3... i don't think people have i don't think people have stopped and to think what does t-mobile mean what does the t in that mean tell um oh i did know that actually there you go so you don't exactly know and it doesn't matter orange what what the hell was orange about oh everything everywhere like it, they're all meaningless names who cares it's a it's a brand that has worked for them thus far. I don't think they need to change it just because it was based on 3G because I bet most people, probably not most of your audience because most of your audience is tech savvy and they know about these things, but I think for the everyday person on the street has no idea that this comes from 3G. If you have an opinion on this, 
that is as strong and researched as Andy's, do let us know. Hello at <laughs> UK or tweet us at textmessagepod. What is your first memory of having a 3G mobile network? Do you remember the first thing you sent or received, your first video call? I'd be very interested to hear that. And, and I say that without any sarcasm. I would actually be interested to hear that. That is the sort of show we are where we're interested in hearing what the first thing you sent over a slightly faster network than existed prior. Uh, But you can do all that at hello at techpodcast.uk. We're going to stay on the topic of mobile phones, but we're going to change track, uh, change tack a little bit and go from the network to the phone itself. Um, CNET this week wrote that the OnePlus 6 got its big unveiling at a London press event uh, on Wednesday, in fact. And the company hopes that its relatively affordable flagship will lure people away from expensive marquee phones like the Galaxy S9 and the iPhone 10, says CNET. Um, according to... Um, Uh, According to CNET, the most significant updates with the OnePlus 6 is the notch that sits at the top of the display where the camera uh, sits and the the screen moves either side of it, like the iPhone X. Um, And uh, the site added, overall, the phone looks quite similar to last year's, but it's now got a vertically stacked set of cameras on the back, which everyone seems to be doing this notch and vertical cameras thing now. Huawei did it most recently, I think, with the P20. Um, But the OnePlus 6 got a bigger screen, bigger camera resolution, optical image stabilization, and it's one of the the first few phones that can run the new beta of Android P um, alongside the Pixel 2 and the Essential phone. Um, Decent specs inside, 2.8 gigahertz Qualcomm Snapdragon 845. But the key thing about this, Andy, and this is what we're going to have to discuss here, is that this phone costs £469. It's a top spec phone. It physically looks a lot like the flagships from Apple and Samsung. But the iPhone X starts in Britain at £1,000 and the S9 starts at just under £900. so you're talking potentially about a hell of a bargain. Now, I know you know about OnePlus. You've reviewed a lot of them. I know um, we can't talk about this one specifically because you're under a NDA, an embargo. So we'll talk quite generally about the OnePlus brand. What is it that people like about these phones? Why do people go so crazy when a new one's announced? Well, two reasons, really. And you've nailed it already in that it's all about the price. Like This is a company that is giving people flagship quality products with this with with the sort of specs that can easily outstrip uh the top phones of the era this was the same last year with the OnePlus 5 and 5T went up ahead against the Galaxy S8 um like and is actually a genuine rival for flagship phones but coming in hundreds of pounds less like that is an exciting proposition because we haven't really had that in mobile for quite a long time. The last time we really had it was when Google was doing the Nexus series. And I remember that the uh, the Google Nexus 4 was this amazing, uh, again, flagship level phone of the time, but for hundreds of pounds less than other flagships of the time. And it sold really well because of it. And uh, stock became an issue for Google. It didn't have any. And then Google sort of started going towards the Nexus 6 and it became really expensive. And now obviously we've got the Pixel, which are not only flagship quality, but very much flagship price. And so OnePlus are kind of filling that void that Google left behind with the Nexus line um, in, in offering something that more people can actually afford, but without sacrificing on quality. And generally and speaking, generally speaking um, do these phones 
do, do they stack up against whatever the current flagship competitor is? You know, take the let's take the OnePlus Five uh, specifically, just to save you accidentally Six. breaking an embargo. Uh, no, the OnePlus Five, oh, okay. um, and compared to the iPhone Eight and the Galaxy S Eight or something, you know, are yeah. they are they genuinely, you know, are they genuine rivals to those phones, or do they just appear to be in specs? They are in many respects. I mean, there there are some sacrifices, and and with the OnePlus Five, uh, that, that the biggest sacrifice was in the camera, um, in that it was decent and it was up there with the best of like the upper mid-range phones uh but it wasn't quite up there with the iphone or the galaxy s8 um as it was um and that was sort of the main the main downside um that was commented on quite a lot but really for most people it it that camera is is perfectly good for for great snaps when you're out and about it's not something you're going to particularly notice and uh, i've spent a bit of time with the OnePlus 6 so far i haven't been able to have enough time to give a full verdict but so far it seems to be again very very good the problem is that that OnePlus now has is that it's 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 managed to develop such a passionate audience um, of um, of followers around the world um, because of the fact that this is a company that really started out taking in so many um, ideas and thoughts from its audience. It was almost crowdsourced. Uh, Every single phone that it launched, it, it released sort of beta versions out there and it asked for ideas from its community and it took those ideas on board and everyone had a say on the phone and when they decided to do some things with the software if the community was vocal enough about certain changes those changes would be removed like it's completely the opposite of the way that apple would work for example and recently i went to um, i went to an event with the uh, with the founder a guy called carl um and about 30 or so invited um members of that community who had been specifically invited because they were very very close within the oneplus community and the idea was for them to give feedback on what oneplus is doing as a company very very open for both good and bad feedback and there was a lot of feedback that was good um of course lots of oh we love you know this and this but there's a lot of feedback on you are very much losing your identity oneplus used to be this this company that was doing things differently and was and wasn't just following the trends of a time but was listening to its audience and bringing something else to the table and there was a lot of comment that that has been kind of lost with the launch of the five in that it's followed exactly the same design specs as any other phone out there with this metal back and this dual camera and it and it was you know there were good specs for an affordable price but it didn't really have any kind of exciting point that that made it a oneplus phone over any other phone on sale at the time and i really feel that they've done exactly the same with the oneplus 6 they've made the same move to having this glass back which we've seen with samsung's with the s9 with the huawei p20 with the iphone 10 they've all got glass backs now um, they've all got these dual cameras that's now in a vertical orientation they've all got the notch now i know the notch is not necessarily oneplus thing that's a google thing and that's why we've seen the notch on the huawei on the new lg phone but again, there's very little in the OnePlus 6, which is setting it apart from other phones on sale. The only thing is the price. And that may be enough for, for most people. But I think for OnePlus's core audience, they're going to be wanting a little bit more. I mean, it's less than half the price of an iPhone 10, and, you know, just over half the price of a, a Samsung Galaxy S9 Plus yeah. for the entry-level model. So 
if it is only price we're not talking a hundred quid we're talking a gigantic saving like that's quite huge a big amount pull. of money that's a big yeah. pull but as a phone Nate, just i will just point out like you're right like if you are only coming down to price it's amazing and if i was buying my own phone because i review a lot of phones so I, i've always got a new phone in my money would be on the oneplus that's uh, that's great praise. Well, I imagine there are people listening whose money is also on the OnePlus. I would love to get some opinions about why you've chosen it, why you haven't any experience with it. Uh, and then um, once Andy's embargo lifts and we can talk about uh, things in a review capacity, maybe Andy will come back on and uh, largely repeat what he said, but embellished on certain key points. Um, Just saying, but maybe we could do that next week. Maybe we'll do that next week. Yeah. Maybe that's when that'll have happened. Let's find out in a week's time. Uh, For now, though, you can send your opinions in, of course. Hello at techpodcast.uk. Andy, the last 22 years of UK politics just became searchable online. I know you've been waiting up uh, on the edge of your seat, dangerously perched on the edge of that chair over there, uh, for this to happen. And now it has. And I, I imagine you're as excited as I am. I am absolutely, as you say, edge of my seat. Um, I, I paid for the whole seat, but I'm only using the edge. Um, so I, I cannot wait to hear more. Well, here it comes. Britain's gov.uk portal, which has been around since, you know, Netscape Navigator it days. Um, uh, when we when you bought internet access on CD-ROMs on the cover of Computer Magazines. It's along those lines, yeah. Uh, it's been around for a very, very long time. But the National Archive... Uh, had a project to make this trove of historical content more accessible. Um, it shifted 22 years' worth of government websites to the cloud, indexed them all, made them all searchable through an updated version of the UK government web archive. This is according to a Wired write-up this week. Now, Wired wrote that the archive consists entirely of you know historic and publicly available web content, so don't expect to go searching through this and finding references to aliens and things like that. Oh! I know. That- that was the whole. That's the whole point. That's that's the only reason to be excited about something like this is to go through and think, okay, great. Now, finally, state secrets have been made available because they've passed some sort of like t- law of time where now they can be published and and people get to search through and then all these stories start coming out about how many reports the RAF actually gave of unidentified objects over the coast of Cornwall and we get to be excited about oh, there really was alien existence found in Cornwall and the government hid it. But no, if it's going to be like, you know, increasing uh, the charges for parking tickets in Ipswich over the last 20 years, then I don't care. Is, is like what What's exciting about this other, other than it is there? Um, well, there's a couple of things. But first, I just wanted to flag that you can actually go and look at declassified files about UFOs. They are they are listed. I think they're, they're stored at the National Archives in Kew. So you can go and you can go and have a look at them if you if you wanted. Mm. Uh, but this, mm. but no. To, to answer the question more directly, this uh, is an opportunity to basically do searches for your favourite keyword, see what the earliest reference to that keyword was, and then have a good little nostalgic browse. Um, and I've done a little bit of that. Um, the the Wired article highlighted things like, you know, searching for Brexit and finding the first reference to that. Um, I don't want to talk about Brexit, but I did do a search for the word podcast. The earliest reference to the word podcast was from 2005. There were just two entries 
uh, that year. By 2006, that number had gone to 472, which to my eye seemed to be dominated by mention of Eddie Izzard's European podcast. Nope, I'd never heard of that either. And I think largely... Was that before the Ricky Gervais podcast on The Guardian? After. That was 2005. Um, oh. but, but and, and I largely think the the reason there were so many mentions of Eddie Izzard's European podcast um, was because it was displayed on the website's static web pages in, in like a sidebar, which means that Izzard was essentially hard-coded into every page, and so a search result brings it up no matter what him. you All actually right. search for. Um, but still, nonetheless, you can look at how many uh, references the word podcast um, have been there. None of them, I'll be honest, that I looked at were actually that interesting. Uh, so I looked up another word, broadband, because that is something that's radically changed over the period that this uh, set of documents covers. The earliest reference to the word broadband was in 1997. It was in an article from the Central Computer and Telecommunications Agency, which I know we all know what that is. Uh, but just for the one or two who don't, it was a UK government agency that gave essentially tech support to government officials and government uh, bodies. Uh, on the issue, the report concluded that there was a few there were a few problems that people needed to be aware of that government needed to keep in mind here's one of them quote although the number of organizations and individuals with internet access uh, is growing at an unprecedented rate the overwhelming majority of uk households are not yet online some citizens will never have private access to the new technology and a balance between traditional and emerging forms of service delivery will need to be maintained. One means of addressing this is through public access terminals in such places as libraries, town halls, post offices and shopping malls. Uh, this was from 1997. That's not forget. Oh, the idea of going to the post office to get your internet access is so twee. It's great, isn't it? There was another concern that this report highlighted. Quote, there is a growing concern. Bit of a word echo there. That was my fault. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> there is a growing concern in Parliament and in the media about the spread of, quote, undesirable material over the Internet, as well as pornography. This includes how-to materials on drugs, bombs and the tactics of terrorism and racist and sexist polemic. The central debate, as ever, is between justifiable censorship and freedom of expression. Are they, are they actually... Uh considered pornography quote undesirable uh material because i think the internet has proven very much that pornography is absolutely desirable uh the juxtaposition of these two sentences or sentai uh does suggest that they're including pornography in that that under that umbrella of undesirable material but anyway, the fact is, the reason I wanted to highlight this concern is because not much has really changed in the 21 years since this document was prepared, because there's still a concern in Parliament and in the media about the spread of undesirable materials, uh, materials such as bombs and the tactics of terrorism, racist and sexist polemic on the internet. Like, that was a concern in 1997. It's still a concern in 2018, and I strongly suspect it will still be a concern in another 21 years' time. So... We need to get our act together, uh, either that or when we're writing these documents and presenting them to Parliament, someone needs to actually pay attention and do something because 21 years later, not really much has improved, at least in terms of what people fear. So 
just throwing that one out there this whole archive is uh, is is quite fascinating but you, you have to go back quite a few years in order to find the really fascinating stuff because otherwise it's just it's stuff you remember it's stuff from a few years ago if you have a favorite article that you have stumbled across in this new archive of government documents and we'll be linking to this in the show notes at techpodcast.uk and in the mp3 description of this episode um let us know what do you dig up? Type in some exciting keywords that you're used to hearing from me or Ian on this show. See what you find and send it to us. Maybe we can uh, we can go through some some classics on next week's show. Well, that's going to do it for the news. We've got a very exciting feature coming up after this sound effect slash ad, depending on the version of the show you're listening to. Earlier this week, I had dinner with three excellent women who I've known for many years and worked with for also several years. And I thought we would get together as a little treat for the longer term fans and have a conversation and get them each to pick three things that they're currently focused on or have written about or read about that they found particularly compelling. So we're going to diverge, not entirely away from tech, but we're certainly going to diverge into what you might call wired podcast territory of old. Who is this opposite me at my 12 o'clock? Olivia underscore Solon. And to my 10 p.m. Liat Clark. And to uh, sort of 9 p.m. I suppose. It's uh, me, it's Katie Collins. Hooray! We're all back together <laughs> for, for, a special, for a special moment. A lot of people will be very excited because uh, we used to do the Wired podcast together for many years um, and we have been re- reunited for a very brief spell. Uh, for those of you who don't know who uh, my three guests are, go and listen to some of the best episodes of the Wired podcast and you'll quickly be introduced as to why this is very exciting for some other people. Um, so we thought we'd just get together, talk a little bit about um, some stuff we've been working on or something that's fun. And back in the day at Wired, we didn't necessarily confine ourselves just to technology. We would diverge into, I mean, Liv, you wrote about dog poo bin bags that disintegrated dog feces. and The woman who injected herself with horse blood and then walked around wearing horse hooves. Yeah, that was a, that was a classic, you know, some very weird stuff. Um, Liat somehow became our resident porn expert. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, yeah. we, we've done some... Carefully um, curated experts. Yeah, so we thought we'd just delve in and just freely pick a topic. Liv, I know you want to talk about meat. Yes. Tell me about <laughs> tell me about why you're excited about meat right now. Right. So I recently wrote an article where I interviewed a bunch of people. It's for the Guardian um, about the diet, which consisted of all meat, and they call this the carnivore diet. And when I say all meat, I mean no vegetables, no fruit, no carbs, no nothing apart from meat. And in some cases, one of the guys I spoke to ate four pounds of steak each day. They say they claim all sorts of benefits, including kind of digestive benefits and energy benefits and focus. But I don't know, I always wonder with people on such restrictive diets of any kind, whether they would experience sort of that kind of discipline allows you to get into good shape regardless of what you're eating i couldn't survive on four pounds of steak a day that's like your basic diet anyway no i mix it with i mix it with i mix it with bread i mean i've also heard that there's a trend with millennials who won't touch raw meat and now some supermarkets are coming up with 
like hands-free packaging where you yeah. don't have yeah. to touch the meat but in that's order for snowflakes not for well that's how they brand it all right all right <laughs> <laughs> that's how they branded it <laughs> so so what did you conclude when you were talking about this uh this meat fetish that some people have they are at war with vegans as you might imagine but it's it's kind of quite uh i got quite some quite vociferous uh responses after the story was published from both sides who both hated the article equally for them for them all meat eaters they claimed that because i had a dissenting voice from a doctor that i wasn't following the radical science of the people that they subscribe to and then the vegans of course were saying that you know this is an environmental disaster which indeed probably is true uh, and that you know the studies just don't stack up um so you can't really win in these kind of wars but it was fought much more virulently than even gamergate i think <laughs> and who exactly are these people that are just foregoing everything that isn't a meat there's a really interesting subsection of these people who are bitcoin entrepreneurs and one of the guys i spoke to a guy called michael goldstein said that just as bitcoin uh eschews the idea of fiat money uh, all, um, carnivore diet eschews the idea of fiat food um this idea of like government sponsored money or food and and they're such kind of radical free thinkers that they don't need either it, do they follow the mark zuckerberg method in which they uh, will only eat stuff that they've killed in that case, or are they like self? They sound like they're kind of like, you know, anarchists. They're a bit like they like to sort of live a sustainable, self-sustaining lifestyle. Is that correct? That's or? absolutely not true. Oh, okay. One of the guys I spoke to <laughs> would go to McDonald's and buy six to eight hamburger patties for lunch and right. eat those alone. I mean, some people would call that capitalism. But... Yes, <laughs> and some people would call that a bit mad because there's more than just meat in those burgers right they... actually apparently mcdonald's that's that's a, a common misconception mcdonald's burgers are now 100 percent beef as long as you don't eat any of the other accoutrement do these people force their food habits onto their pets because i have heard this from some san franciscan uh sort of free thinking individuals that you know what's good for them must be good for their animals uh, well it's interesting you mentioned that nate because i also when i'm not writing about tech have written about people who make their pets eat vegan diets and with dogs this is actually quite doable because they are omnivores and so they can eat all sorts of things like kibble and vegetables and stuff but cats they are obligate carnivores, which means their whole body is designed to run on meat. And so if you don't give them meat, it can cause them all sorts of problems. Although the vegan cat feeders say that modern science has allowed them to do this. My cat definitely can't survive without meat. He is a very much a fan of the meat. <laughs> well, Katie, what have you been running up your flagpole and saluting? <laughs> <laughs> I'm currently working on a feature, which I hope will be out later this week um, about they're being called hacker rehab camps uh, quite widely in the press. Um, they started last year and they're an initiative by um, the National Crime Agency along with I think Cybersecurity Challenge and they, they've they been set up basically to kind of rehabilitate minor offenders, mainly their, their teenage boys who've been kind of caught doing things on the internet that they shouldn't have, you know, hacking, <laughs> hacking into hacking into things writing code for 
people and selling it perhaps that um, or even just sort of hacking into their local uh, school network but the idea behind this is that they rather than criminalize them straight away what they want to do is um, kind of change the approach that they've taken in the past and you know they kind of issue them with a sort of a, a cease and desist letter to kind of warn them that this is not something that they should do because the law while it is quite clear isn't very well known you know about what people are and aren't allowed to do. The Computer Misuse Act is not something that teenagers tend to know that much about, funnily enough. And they are basically trying to kind of get them back on track and say, we don't want to discourage you from using these skills, but this is the law. Don't break it again. But like, if you if you can kind of continue to build up this skill set, there's there are all these amazing careers in cybersecurity for you because obviously there's a massive skill shortage in the cybersecurity sector. Um, with thousands and thousands of jobs going unfilled. And so I went along to one of these days um, just to see what it was like because I quite like the idea of attending hacker rehab. It sounded quite glamorous. And actually, it was kind of more like, rather than being a sort of rehab in the kind of classic sense, it was more like a kind of a a careers day, I would say. (laughs) But actually, I I felt like I, I was chatting to some of the boys there and, you know, I felt like this is a really, really good thing because we've seen in the past what happens when people like Jake Davis, who was... Anonymous. I oh, know, he was Lulzsec. Lulzsec. Um, you know, he was kind of pulled from his house um, in the... I think it was in the Shetland Islands and flown down to London. And only I think only today he tweeted that he's finally able to use um, encryption again legally. Mm. Um, you know, and he was he was sent to a young offenders institution for, for a little while for his part in some of the things that Lulzsec did. And actually, I think changing the approach to how how young men particularly it does tend to be young men are treated by the criminal justice system is actually a really positive thing Um, and I know that he's actually had a part to play in how they're kind of overhauling this and trying to rethink you know the way that they they treat these guys because they they have these amazing skills that actually we really really need as society so they don't want to discourage them from using them it's just about trying to direct that energy in into a in, in a way that serves us all and, and serves them and stops them from ending up with a criminal record when they don't really need one. And, you know, they're not the kind of people that would ever, under any other circumstance, usually have a criminal record by the time they're, like, 15, 16. So, um, yeah, I, I thought it was... Um, I was really impressed by the day. Um, and I know that there are some other countries that are starting to get interested in this now. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how it's going to play out in future and hopefully help solve the job shortage and help these boys who are just kind of kids that are really clever and just get themselves often in with the wrong crowd. And are they predominantly boys? I mean, yes. did you see did you yeah. see any girls there as well? I didn't, although I believe so they the I went along to the second camp. They they've um they'd run two by the time I I I kind of went along but I know I was talking to two policemen who'd came who come down from Newcastle to observe the event that I went to in Bristol which was held it was held at Bristol Aerospace Museum almost directly underneath the Concorde which was quite cool because I've never seen a Concorde before they were going to run an event up in Newcastle a few weeks later and um they they said that they were they were expecting one girl to come along wow. so that was the first girl that that was asked to attend one of the events. And she, she'd she been a, a wrongdoer in some form. I think, well, yes. Everyone that is invited along has done something that's, uh, you know, not considered 
quite within the bounds of the law. Leah, have you ever considered being a hacker and uh, disrupting society with your brain? Um, every day, every day, Nate. No. I was just thinking when I was listening that girls are obviously far superior at evading the law, I think. <laughs> So, Leah, you've had a very exciting uh, couple of years. It's been thrilling, Nate, thrilling. As a result of, uh, of children being in your life. And yeah. you've have you managed to blend, and I don't mean blend a child with tech because that sounds kind of gruesome, but have <laughs> you managed to adopt any kind of tech uh, as a result of being a mum? Uh, have you got any experiences with technology and, and babies? Um, in relation to babies, I would say it is a profitable market, but preys on the sleep deprived and doesn't actually make your lives better in the slightest it's like a, lot, a lot of that with children actually how you can stalk your kids and you know make sure they're not doing anything terrible on the internet but actually you never sit down and have a discussion with your kids perhaps about the do's and don'ts of of, um, of using technology and, and the internet so actually no i've found it actually kind of damaging so you've to... kind of gone anti-tech as far as like parenting has gone and only as far as like when we're talking about baby related things mm. there you know if you google how to make a baby sleep or whatever you're going to be sold white noise devices and apps and you know monitors that are going to tell you if your baby is breathing or not which Sounds don't work stressful yeah, yeah exactly adds a, like basically adds layer upon layer of anxiety and doesn't solve any like most advice that people give you about how to make a baby sleep doesn't solve anything so I, I would say in that respect no so the other day I was seeing um there was some a crib that was supposed to rock a baby to sleep and it had supposedly been built in, in consultation with MIT and uh, there were some <laughs> videos where it did appear to work but I had an interesting conversation with with um, Jemima Kish who actually used to be a um, tech editor at The Guardian and she was saying that it's like classic Silicon Valley trying to outsource the labour of parenting yeah. to a robot when actually like a lot of the bonding with a child happens um, during the kind of rocking them to sleep and stuff. And I'm wondering what you think of that. That's interesting. Yeah. So obviously in, in the early days, that's all the baby wants is to be on literally on your skin. Everyone goes on about skin to skin. You must, you know, have them on you at all times at the beginning. And that's just it's nature they want to be feel protected and safe so generally they scream when you put them down <laughs> when they're very young and they learn to do that when they're very old too um so absolutely that's that's kind of an insane approach i can understand when you're completely sleep deprived and your baby will only go to sleep by being rocked but i'm still looking for for the my friend actually suggested that i have my breast 3d printed and have a lifelike nipple put on because my baby would only go to sleep on my breast. <laughs> so you breast might feeding. find a market beyond your baby for yeah. that kind of product. Yeah, and you can <laughs> strap it to the man and then the man can know the like sheer hell of having someone anyway. And is using that a, is that a, a is that a thing? It should be, I think. Because, because there was a, then there was you a... just stick it in the cot and then maybe you can sleep, but I don't see how it can be safe. I remember back at Wired I wrote about um a Japanese artist who had created something called the, I think it was called like the menstruation machine. And it was essentially a device that a man could strap to him with electrodes and contracting bits that, that tried in some way to replicate the, fear, the, the feeling of, um, of having a bad period. And um, I mean, she's fascinating and she's gone off to do amazing things since, but I, I still never get away from the feeling that that probably would actually make a little bit of a difference in in maybe my understanding of 
of what something like that feels like. So I could see... I, I think men would have that on for a minute and then say they had it on all day and it wouldn't actually change anything. But is that... <laughs> is the, I mean, that, that's a really interesting idea, like 3D printing a body part to assist with, you know, child-rearing. Yeah. Like, well, that's not I, something I, I've ever really heard about. I think probably it could save relationships, Nate, because <laughs> the fact is that, especially if you're breastfeeding, you're, you're tied... To, you, the man just cannot do 50% of the work. And it happens to so many of my friends, even if their baby at the beginning takes bottles and this, that and the other, that, you know, by six months they've, whatever, learnt all kinds of sleep associations and basically they've learnt how to trap mum and they won't let go of your damn nipple at 3am <laughs> <laughs> and it's a nightmare. But so I, the, the rocking the crib thing, I think to save your sanity, you spend money on all kinds of stuff and that's why I think it's, it's quite damaging because... You, you will literally pay anything to have a couple hours extra sleep if you can. But two weeks later, that baby is going to say, actually, that's a robotic rock. i uh, <laughs> I got to go back to the real thing. And they'll scream and scream and they'll learn, they'll learn how to get you back. So I think nature will always overcome MIT's very clever <laughs> algorithm, algorithm, algorithm. See, I can't speak. This has been fascinating. I couldn't let the opportunity go without getting the four of us together to do a little bit of bit of classic podcasting. So if anyone's liked what they've heard, I think the back catalogue of Wide Podcast is almost certainly still um, online and hopefully we'll be able to get you guys back. Um, we'll include links to everything that, um, that the guys have talked about uh, on in the show notes, of course, uh, in the podcast. And the links will be in the MP3 description as well uh, to Liv and, uh, and Katie's respective stories. And um, yeah, we're going to have to, you know, rekindle this conversation, I think, soon and, and delve into this a little bit deeper. I think it's, it's a topic that I don't hear discussed on technology podcasts. And I think we could probably do with changing that a little bit. I agree. So <laughs> thank you to you all. Breath. You say but you've got a lot of fans listening, I'll be honest. A lot of fans. Do you have a message for the lot of fans? We miss you, and um, it's a real shame that we can't do this every week. Oh, I wish, yeah. Maybe we should. You can stay up late, early. <laughs> What's the time difference? Eight hours. <laughs> I'm always awake. <laughs> Well, we'll include all links to uh, the stories that Liv and Katie and Liat uh, talked about in the show notes at techpodcast.uk and in the MP3 description here. If you'd like to hear more of them, obviously, you can let us know. I know some of you will. Maybe we can get them back on more regularly. Let's move into our mailbag. Andy, uh, this is a bulging sack. Normally get Ian to put his hand in first and pull out the lucky message that I will uh, discuss first. Since your hand is already uh, pre-moistened and ready to take the plunge, why don't you pull out the first d thing, item, card? <laughs> this is disgusting. Sorry. You've, you've made this whole section really uncomfortable now, but I will, I will, um, I will dig in. Uh, and this one uh, starts off from Richard. Uh, he says, hi, and Ian. I presume that should have been hi, Nate, and Ian, or maybe Andy, because I'm the one reading it out. Possibly. I didn't notice that. Oh, well, he says, just enjoying listening to this week's podcast that unfortunately I missed the live recording of. One thing that I have very, um, uh, one thing I have been very disappointed with the HomePod is that you cannot play audiobooks um, with it. 
I just bought all of the Harry Potter audiobooks in iBooks because I wanted to listen to Stephen Fry reading them. I agree. My children all enjoy them too, and I was hoping to play them through the home pods in their bedrooms as a bedtime story and read along with the actual books. As it turns out, they cannot play audiobooks from the iBook store. Seems like a major failing in my opinion. I'm going to try to raise this with Apple support. You never know, they might refund me some of £120 that the full set of audiobooks cost. Regards, Richard. Um, that's a very good point. I didn't realise that that was um, the case. You couldn't you couldn't have audiobooks read out. Um, that would seem to be a very, very good use of the HomePod. Yeah, I mean, presumably, Richard, you can airplay them to the HomePod. So you would have to have another device with you, but you could still get the end result that you're after. Um, so, like, on your iPhone, open up the audiobook... Uh, in in Audible or, or iBooks, as he says, and then as you're playing it, literally just sort of use AirPlay to send it to the speaker. Yeah, it should that should work absolutely fine. It's not as elegant, and it's certainly annoying, um, as many things are with the HomePod. It's a frustrating limitation. I'm still not over the fact that it can't read me what my next or first meeting is the, the following day, but that's by the by. I think the AirPlay system should work uh, in this instance, and I'm sure there'll be many people listening on an Amazon Echo or who have a Google Home who don't have this problem, but uh, I think the, the one thing that Richard can at least use to redeem his purchase with is the fact that his will sound better, uh, as long as it works at all in the first place. Well, uh, thank you very much, Richard, for that. The next email comes in from Jacob, uh, who actually sent a couple of emails, but I'm going to focus on one that he sent from a confidential email system within Gmail. This is what we've been hoping to get from someone for the last couple of weeks. We finally figured out from the audience how the new encrypted confidential uh, timed expiry email system works in Gmail. I received an email from Jacob, and within it, it said that a confidential mail has arrived, uh, and I have to click on a link that uh, will then tell me to put in my email address. So type in the same email address um, that I have to confirm. It doesn't tell me what it is to make sure it hasn't been forwarded to uh, to a third party. I then typed in my email address, and then in my inbox, I received a code, and then I put the code into the website that the original email opened for me and that allows me to access the message so when the time expires that jacob or, or any sender applies to one of these expiring emails then the message will disappear but that initial item in my inbox saying i had the message won't be removed at least it won't from gmail to another client maybe it does from gmail to gmail um, does that mean that when you open the email and that timer starts if someone comes in and says nate 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 you've quickly you've got to come and look at this it's going to be great you have to say no 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 no. i've got an email to read well they're not expiring within a few minutes i mean these are expiring in 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 sort of days rather than no. things so unless there's not like a snapchat 10 second thing no 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 so thank right. you, Jacob, for clarifying that. Um, finally, we get to answer that uh, that, that issue. Um, and finally, um, well, almost finally, we, we had a, an email from Nick, which I'm cutting down ever so slightly, but we, we, we talked about the HomePod last week and the Amazon Echo and Google Home. And to try and figure out what people are actually doing with these, when we complain about the limitations it has, sometimes I wonder if my requests are just too specific and that these devices are dev- designed for 99% of everyday uh, questions that can be asked to it and not the 1% that I want. Um, Nick says, in the show last week, you were a bit skeptical about what the likes of... Whenever he's used the A word 
for Amazon's device, I'm going to dynamically change that as I read it to Amazon Echo. First off, I'd ask if you'd use one for a period of time. I've found with many technologies over the years that you really need to live with something to get under the skin of it. I'm sure you've found the same. There are some quite small things that are just useful. So if I'm looking at sliding wardrobe doors online with my wife, brackets, we have a fun life, end brackets, and one site uses centimeters while another uses inches, then it's easy to just ask the Amazon Echo to convert. I could do it in Google easily, but Amazon Echo is even easier. Uh, so I'll just use it. It's not life-changing, but just an increment that helps. He also says getting tube statuses, or stati, I suppose, or commute status while dressing in the morning makes things go a little smoother. I bought a number of digital radios over the time, trying to find something that was easy to use with decent sound quality. They're all gathering dust now as the Echo Dot is plugged into a speaker. I can now walk into my kitchen and say, Amazon Echo, play Radio X while I'm doing something else, or switch channel. I do still have the digital radio alarm clock by my bed, but have to refer to instructions if I want to recall what the buttons do. Now I just say, Amazon Echo Woman, set alarm for 7am. I don't have to put the light on or faff around to do that. And this is my favourite point that Nick concludes with. The fact that Amazon's assistant has an easy voice interface will make a big difference for the blind and people with cognitive impairments. My dad is over 90 years old and he could never figure out how to use his radio presets. He now asks for the channel he wants and although he still uses his Galaxy S5 phone and I speak to him most days, sometimes he forgets to charge it or sets it to flight mode. Then I drop in on his Echo and talk him to him directly if he's in the room. He doesn't need to accept the call, which he sometimes had difficulty doing on his phone. Hi, Dad. Your phone's not working. Is it charged? That's a hypothetical uh, conversation from Nick there. Uh, both the Amazon Assistant, the Google AI, and other voice interfaces do, I think, offer something incrementally useful for most of us today and something more than incremental for people with special needs. Uh, there's clearly a lot more development to come. Very insightful, Nick. Not really thought about it like that. And you're almost certainly spot on and i would love to hear any examples of people um who have any kind of special needs or or know of people who have special needs uh who are benefiting from these uh, these devices specifically and and give us some other examples because i think it's an it's not often raised is it you know we, we complain that audiobooks don't stream on it properly or i complain that we can't access my next meeting on it um but actually behind the scenes all of these devices do offer something maybe genuinely, uh, I don't say life-changing, that's a bit grand, but certainly it makes things an awful lot more convenient. Absolutely. I used to um, uh, sort of uh, write various bits about uh, technology that sort of helps the uh, the elderly at home. And a lot of that is really based around having like emergency buttons that you might wear that can call um, a number. And uh, there are various um, phones made by companies like Doro that have got these safety systems built in. Whereas if you ring, uh, if you ring a certain number of times, it doesn't answer. It automatically calls um, uh, calls uh, an assistance line. Where, um, because the idea being that if, say, um, an old person has had a fall, maybe down the stairs, something, they're physically unable to reach their phone to make a call, that that would be able to, um, by you calling them, it, it activates that um, that service. But this way, they may not be able to move their hands to get to their phone, but they may be able to call out um, to a, a smart device like the smart device you're talking about or Apple's one or a different one in order to call for help, um, which could really be life-saving if you've got uh, another similar example to this uh, let us know i'd love to hear them hello at techpodcast.uk and uh, thanks to everyone for emailing in including ross uh, who did send an email saying that the website our website was was blocked 
on his work web browser uh, because it fell into the category of, quote, illegal drugs. Now, <laughs> it seems a little premature since it was only this show that we started talking about um, drugs on the internet, but perhaps it's just a proactive filter and it just anticipated that 138 episodes in, we'd probably mention drugs. Now, normally this is when we segue into our promotion from Tom Merritt of Daily Tech News Show, but Tom's out as well. I'm wondering if possibly he might also be out with Ian in his uh, ostrich farm. Uh, he's not. I know where he is, and he's he's not doing anything with Ian. Uh, so instead, Sarah Lane, uh, tell us what's been going on this week in the wider world of tech. Here's what's going on on DTNS. We examine Twitter and their latest approach to clamping down on negative behavior, Exam cheating in schools in the age of smartphones and wearables, vulnerabilities in PGP and S-MIME, Uber riders now being able to rate their ride mid-trip, and how technology will be leveraged after the Supreme Court ruled restrictions on sports gambling were unconstitutional. All that and more on DTNS Live every Monday through Friday at 4.30 p.m. Eastern, 2030 UTC. Find out more at dailytechnewsshow.com slash live. Thank you, Sarah. Now... That's it, Andy. Why don't you tell people where they can find you? Uh, what should they look out for you, from you over the coming uh, few days? Um, I've been doing a couple of uh, really great shoots with some cars. Um, last week, I was in Cornwall um, shooting um, uh, overnight on two two nights, um, a new Rolls-Royce and getting some really great star trails and the Milky Way in there. So you can expect some really glossy photos soon. Uh, next week, I'm going out to France to shoot the Bugatti Chiron um, and the behind the scenes in the factory. So you can expect that. Uh, may not be for a few weeks, but the best place to find me is with at BatteryHQ on either Twitter or you can see all my photography on Instagram, which I strongly encourage you to do because I really want more people to follow me on Instagram. Well, I encourage everybody to do that. I've seen these photos Andy's talking about and they are rather special, absolutely magnificent. Uh, do check those out at BatteryHQ. And thank you, Andy, for uh, for joining us and filling Ian's sizable shoes without needing to use a shoehorn and thank you to our patrons supporting us every week we cannot finish the show without mentioning you if you're not yet a patron though and i'd like to get our ad-free versions and the extended cuts which this week we talked about nuns uh, in quite some detail and for very good reason as well that's on the extended version of the show uh, which is also ad free uh, along with our outtakes you can get that by heading to patreon.com forward slash uk tech and you can support us with zero commitment and instant accesses, access, of course, to our entire back catalogue. Uh, send any comments to hello at techpodcast.uk and follow us on Twitter at textmessagepod. From me, Nate Langson, and my guest, Andy, who I'm sure is still there. Oh, I'm still here, and uh, but about to not be, because I believe we're coming to the end. This is the end. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.